Two and a Half Admins, episode 114. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. Jim, you found an article on Ars Technica, which I had seen the headline of and dismissed as silly nonsense. I also read that headline and dismissed it as silly nonsense, but I was bored enough to click through it anyway. The headline was, we interviewed Linux OS through an AI bot to discover its secrets. And it sounds unutterably silly, and I wanted nothing to do with it, but I also wanted nothing to do with getting back to work at the moment. So I clicked through into the article. (laughs) So it turns out to be an interview conducted with a web service at character.ai, which uses an algorithm similar to the famous GPT-3 to power its bots. The idea is that you can create a personality and then converse with that personality. And uh, what the folks at ours did was tell it, you're the Linux operating system now, and then start up a chat with it. And it reminded me a lot of the uh, the story from a few news cycles back, the Google engineer who kind of went off his nut a little bit and decided that Google's AI had become sentient. I think most of us have read that chat log by now and remarked on how realistic it appeared this one is is much the same. Uh, we had an ours reporter asking it things like, you know, what its favorite desktop environment was and how was Linux different from Windows and Mac OS. And it read really just like a relatively clueful human trying to impersonate an operating system to answer these stupid questions. So the cool thing about it was not so much the theme of it if you will, you know, that it was supposed to be about Linux. The interesting thing was that this was several pages of, from what I understand, unedited transcript that most people would cheerfully pass as human if they weren't clued in to look for something different. I mentioned the the whole thing on Twitter earlier today, chatting with Joe, and Joe immediately picked up on a thing where the bot said that it thought that the GNOME desktop environment was great because it was heavily extensible. And, you know, that's a pro that people usually award to KDE, not to GNOME. So Joe's like, oh, well, obviously that's a bot. But I'm like, you know, if that's your litmus test, you have just immediately and incorrectly classified a whole bunch of GNOME fanboys and probably developers as bots. They're quite human. They're maybe wrong, but, you know, <laughs> and again, the, the big thing here is not how right did it get intimate topics of Linux desktop use. It's the fact that if you had really been asked where this came from and you didn't know that AI was in the mix, what you probably would have done is is seized on the same point to make fun of it and said, oh, who's the clueless git that impersonated the operating system here? You wouldn't have said, this is a bot. Yeah. To be clear, it wasn't extensible. It was customizable, which is a a subtle difference, but uh, never mind. Yeah, looking at the transcript, when I saw the first couple, I'm like, well, yeah, you're asking the questions that AI is good at. It's like, how old are you? And it's like, well, I can pull out the fact that, you know, Linux started in 1991 and had its first release in 1994, uh, or 1.0 release in 1994. And who created you? A young Scandinavian college student, etc. But then when it got to more like, how do you feel about Mac OS? And it's like, oh, interesting. I wonder, you know, which bit of the internet it pulled this one from, where it's like, I don't agree with Apple's restrictions, yada, yada, yada. But, you know, I'm wondering if out there somewhere, some Linux proponent has actually said these specific words or words to these effect that the bot is picked up on as the answer to that question. Well, I can pretty much guarantee it's not those specific words, because by the time you stitch somebody's specific words off of the Internet, you know, into a perfectly passable conversational flow, you might as well have just generated to begin with. 
the way these things work is they they figure out tone and sentiment and they say similar things. They don't, they don't just grab exact words and, and paste them in. And the thing that got me about all this is I actually found it quite chilling personally because in several pages of transcript, it stayed passable for human the whole way through. And it would certainly be possible to trip it up. If you asked me to go and administer a Turing test to something that might be a bot, I probably wouldn't be asking it about Linux. Uh, One of the problems with that is that even if you say, oh, well, it got these things wrong about Linux, well, how much would your grandmother get right if you asked her about Linux? You're not testing, is this a bot or is this human? You're testing its knowledge on a specific deep technical subject, which is not the whole point. Now, if you want to figure out, is this thing human or not? The weakness you really want to attack is that so far, uh, you know, none of these neural networks are very good at maintaining state. If you refer back to earlier points in the conversation, they can't follow you because they don't have a memory that deep. For example, you could ask it questions about its childhood, and the first time through, it will probably create for you a pretty believable set of childhood stories. But if you go and reference those later, it will invent a second childhood for itself. So it's not that it's impossible to give these things a Turing test or even necessarily that difficult if your only constraint is I want a human who knows what they're doing to be able to identify this pretty well as either a human or a bot. The issue is that now you're saying, okay, well, I need this to be somebody who is pretty clueful on how to identify a bot. And I need them to have like a significant amount of time and characters to flush this out. If you were to tell this bot to go jump on Twitter right now, I, I don't think I could ID it. I, I don't see how I could limited to three or four 280 character interactions. There's just no way. Yeah. Also interesting that in identifying with it, almost its favorite version of Windows was Windows 98. <laughs> but kind of getting to your point when asked, oh, I didn't know you were a Windows user growing up and, you know, did Linus set that up for you or whatever? And it goes on to talk about porting Linux to x86 CPUs in kind of non sequitur until it circles back a little bit that Linus's home country's schools still use Windows at the time. Right. But again, the point is that all this stuff is subtle. And if there's one thing that we all should know by now about the human race in general, it's that not a whole lot of it is capable of or inclined to do careful analysis of what it's communicating with. This thing is already capable of passing for human, is what it boils down to. What this is not is a strong general AI. Strong AI refers to something that can function on as broad a spectrum as a human can, can carry an entire human conversation, will pass a Turing test, even administered by someone skilled in identifying bot versus human. That is absolutely not what this thing is. It is not that bright. It doesn't think the way that you or I would. We're still talking about something with the general intelligence of probably something along the lines of a flatworm. Conversation is everything it knows how to do. It doesn't talk the way you or I talk. It talks the way you or I breathe. Like that's just essential to its being. It's the whole thing. That's all it knows how to do. And more specifically, it can't do it for long periods of time and, you know, build these really long, coherent stories. Uh, It's good at appearing human for three or four sentences at a time basically. So you can't tell it to go drive your car. Uh, You can't go tell it to win a political debate against Joe Biden or, I don't know, maybe it would against Trump. (laughs) 
But it's not human. It's not general intelligence. It's not a thing that you should be like, oh, we need to treat this thing super sweet and nice because it's just like us. It is not. It's very, very far from that. I don't know about you guys, but as a kid, I dreamed of the idea of a computer that I could speak in natural language to and have it talk back to me. And eventually, as I grew to understand traditional computing and symbolic logic better, I accepted this is never going to be possible. And now these freaking neural networks have turned the tables on that. And not only is it possible, like it's here. You know, this is conversational AI in a way that something like the the old Eliza, you know, from back in the, the 80s was never going to be able to do. Yeah, it specifically reminds me of dialing into a local BBS and, and using one of the door games called Lisa or something. And it was exactly trying to just be this chat bot. And it kind of sort of worked a little bit enough that, you know, with enough imagination, you could feel like you were talking to a person. Whereas now we're getting, you know, it's actually really good at pretending to be a person, like you said, a couple sentences at a time. But as you string the things together, it doesn't always make sense. But I, I just really love the one it came up with here. The article's author is asking Linux, are you a kernel or an operating system? And Linux is like, that question is kind of like asking if a person is a heart. <laughs> Am I just the kernel? Yes. Am I just an operating system? No. It's like, what does that even mean? You can see where it's pulled together the thing where it knows that Linux is a kernel and, and pulls different components from a bunch of different things. But also it tried to work in some bit of like poetry almost or something into it. And it is, is amusing anyway. I thought it did an incredible job with that, yep. honestly. I was like, that's a really freaking good answer. I can't believe mm -hmm. a chatbot came up with that. Yeah. To put this whole thing in perspective again, I, I really want to get across why I keep saying I find this so chilling. I mentioned Twitter. I'm like, okay, there's no way I'll identify one of these things in you know three or four tweets, for example. So obviously, Twitter is not the uh, highest standard for online communication. When it comes to relatively public online media, I would actually hold up ArsTechnica.com's comment section as one of the better places to talk with strangers and expect to get something intelligent out of it. With that said, you know, even the Ars forums, they you have your regulars that have been there for 10 years, but have just one hot topic and like it's their big thing and they keep saying the same stupid crap, usually something defending racist or sexist practices or whatever, but like that's their hot button. And those guys are there 15 pages deep on the comment thread on an article, right? I couldn't detect the difference between several of those people and one of this bot. You absolutely could replace one of those people with this bot. And I think it could go on for just as long as they did. And I would be no more certain of its humanity. Ooh, that sounds dark than I am of theirs. <laughs> but I, you see where I'm going with this, right? I mean, there's the old joke, you know, from, from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, you know? I'll replace you with it. Well, it's it actually got a little transmogrified from the original. But in geek circles, it ends up being, you know, if you keep annoying me, I'll replace you with a very small shell script. That's not a thing you can do, but for a certain class of internet commenter, even at great length over years of interaction, I think it's entirely possible, yeah, you could replace them with one of these things. And again, if I got suspicious enough, I feel like, yes, I could absolutely lead this thing down a path and I'd be like, yep, that's a bot. But like, 
I need the suspicion first and you're going to have to give me like a significant amount of time and noise in the channel to walk it through all that to get there. And it would be very easy to evade as well, because if we're talking about a public channel like this, other commenters are going to interrupt and it makes it very easy to do a human like just not responding to that. You know, you go off and go, oh, no, I'd rather respond to that over there because that's more like on topic for me and what I'm about. So I'm going to ignore this one guy and go to that one. And again, this is something like those folks already do. When you make a point they don't want to address, they don't address it. Then some other noob pops into the thread, says something they do have a canned answer for, and they go for it. And some of these folks, like I said, there are a few that have been around for 10 or 15 years there. So like, they at least started out human. (laughs) Yeah, I just actually the top comment right now is, there you have it, folks. Linux is sentient. It doesn't really want a larger market share. Why are we trying to force it? It's unethical. <laughs> okay, this episode is sponsored by Tailscale. Go to tailscale.com. Tailscale is a VPN service that makes the devices and applications you own accessible anywhere in the world, securely and effortlessly. It enables encrypted point-to-point connections using WireGuard, which means only devices on your private network can communicate with each other. Unlike traditional VPNs, which tunnel all network traffic through a central gateway server, Tailscale creates a peer-to-peer mesh network. It handles complex network configuration on your behalf, so you don't have to. Network connections between devices pierce through firewalls and routers as if they weren't there, so there's no need to manually configure port forwarding. Tailscale is available for Linux, Mac, Windows, Raspberry Pi and ARM, Android, iOS, Synology, and for devices that don't allow additional software to be installed, such as printers and other embedded devices, where you can set up a subnet router to act as a gateway, relaying traffic from your Tailscale network onto your physical subnet. So go to tailscale.com and try it for free on up to 20 devices. That's tailscale.com. All right, Jim, you got mad about the RAID Z or RAID Z calculator. I did. So as most of you probably know, I moderate the RZFS community at Reddit. And we had a user show up asking some really bizarre questions about RAID topology and ZFS topology. And uh, they wanted to know, should they stripe or should they mirror all the VDEVs in their pool? And those of you who are yourselves ZFS admins should already be scratching your heads like, wait, what? That's not a thing. Because it's not. The pool distributes rights amongst all your VDEVs and you don't really get a say in that. It does it how it wants to do it. And that's all there is to it. Uh, It's similar to, but not quite the same thing as striping. It is absolutely not mirroring. There is no parity or redundancy at the pool level, only at the individual VDEV level. However, we do get a pretty good stream of relatively confused newbies. So when I saw this question, I just assumed it was another confused user. And really, it wasn't their fault this time. This user had... They wanted to find out how much space they would have available when they built a large pool out of real disks on a real machine. And they thought, well, there's got to be a calculator online that will let me figure out how this stuff works. And they knew that ZFS uses topology called RAID Z. So they Googled RAID Z calculator. And sure enough, that brings you to www.raidz-calculator.com. And when you get there, it asks you to, uh, you know, select some data out of a bunch of combo boxes, uh, you know, drop downs, what have you, and build a virtual idea of a pool. And it will theoretically tell you how much space you'll have available in that pool and even give you an idea as to the performance characteristics of the pool as you put it together. The problem is, not to put too fine a point on it, the whole thing is a giant mind-bending crock of shit. They offer you the ability to do things that are 
utterly impossible in ZFS. For example, mirror all your VDEVs together, which you can't do. That's not on anybody's roadmap. It is not a thing. Not only can you do things in this calculator that don't exist in ZFS, the bits that try to tell you how much space you'll have and what the performance implications will be, they're entirely wrong as well. Now, so far, this is annoying, maybe a little bit interesting, but it doesn't feel like there's that much to it, right? Like, okay, somebody made a bad calculator, let's move on. The thing that really got my attention about this is that the folks who made this page, they make a Windows-only piece of software that claims to be able to recover damaged RAID and ZFS pools. So these folks who don't even have the vaguest understanding of what simple pool topology looks like are trying to tell you that if you just install their program on your Windows machine, you'll be able to import a damaged pool into it and recover data from it. And I'm just, <laughs> what? It's interesting that this is on a Windows server, I assume from the .aspx extension on the uh, URL. And also there's no SSL cert. <laughs> I missed that. They make Windows software, so I suppose the Windows server makes sense. But yeah, offering to let you mirror together a bunch of VDEVs that are like RAID Z or something. It's like, that. that's not a thing. You, uh, and, you know, if someone shows up asking you, should I stripe my mirrors or mirror my stripes? It's like, that's not how that works in ZFS. It's like, you have a bunch of VDEVs and their ZFS writes across them. It's not actually striping because it might decide to write more data to the faster one or the less fragmented one or other things. It's not as strict as striping. It's very dynamic. And so even calling it striping isn't quite right. And so that whole drop-down box about your RAID Z type of groups combining, which I just realized that doesn't even make sense in English. No. RAID Z type for groups combining. <laughs> that shouldn't even be there. But then the results you get, like if you tell it, give me two groups of disks, stripe them together. Each group is two disks and they're this big and they're going to be mirrors. And it comes up with a size, which depending on what set of options you picked is wildly wrong, but sometimes kind of right. But then it's like, this will be four times faster at reading, but there'll be no write speed gains. Like, But I, I have two groups, so I would actually have a write speed gain of, of at least two drives. If the read's going to be 4x, then the write's got to be 2x in that case. And the, this calculator just like, no. And if you fill it out, and you know, when it says number of disks, I assumed it meant the total number of disks, not the number of disks per group. And it was telling me that my two mirrored VDEVs, I could lose three disks and everything be okay. I'm like, nope, that's not how that works either. Then the final drop-down box is for RAID Z type. And your options are stripe set, mirror, RAID Z1, RAID Z2, or RAID Z3. Well, obviously, a mirror VDEV is not RAID Z at all. It's a mirror VDEV. But even above and beyond that, there's no such thing as a stripe set VDEV. In theory, what they're probably reaching for is just a single disk VDEV. But again, it's, just, it's not just that this site is wrong. It's fractally wrong. You can continue going deeper and uncovering more wrong things for as much patience as you have. I have not had the time, unfortunately. I, I've been very tempted just for the lulls to actually download their Reclaim Me Pro software and run it on a Windows machine and feed it a pool and see what happens. I haven't had the time yet, but listeners, if any of you are ZFS types and you've got the time and the inclination, I would love to hear how you get along with Reclaim Me Pro and a damaged or healthy ZFS pool that you somehow put on your Windows server, which is probably not... Where it started, but, you know, 
for the lols. You know, normally we link to everything in the show notes, but I don't want to boost their SEO by linking to them. <laughs> no, no, no. If you're not interested enough to, to type this in or Google it, then no. Yeah, definitely want to do it. If you do need to estimate like this, your best bet is spin up a VM or have a computer that is already using ZFS or has ZFS installed, and you can make a pool out of files. So you use the truncate command to make a bunch of sparse files that are the size of the hard drives you want to use. So very easy to create 20, 10 terabyte sparse files in your slash TMP, and it won't actually take up any disk space. Uh, you'll take a couple kilobytes. And then zpool create out of those, and you'll be able to see exactly how much it's going to take in that topology, and then zpool destroy it, and zpool create it with a different topology, and see exactly how much usable space you'll get out of that. And it will exactly match what happens when you use real hard drives, because you can create the files to be exactly the same number of bytes as a hard drive. Like, it'll be 10 billion bytes instead of actually 10 gigabytes or terabytes. Yep. And if that's breaking your brain a little bit, uh, if you're not familiar with the concept of sparse files, for example, if you were to say truncate-s10g drive.bin, what it's going to do is it's going to create a file that says it's 10 gigs in size, and you actually could, in theory, put 10 gigs of data in it, and then it would actually occupy 10 gigs on your drive. But it doesn't take up any more space than the amount of data you've actually put into it. And that's why you can create a pool of any size that is good enough to see what your available size will be just by using temp files. This can just be on a laptop. You can create petabytes of virtual storage on your laptop and see how ZFS would interact with that. Now, you can't actually put petabytes of data into it, but until you try to do that, it's no different, works the same. What was it that Clara tweeted recently about the maximum size you can have with ZFS? Some ridiculous number. 16 exabytes? Yeah. No, sorry. 16 exabytes is the maximum size of one individual file in ZFS. And then, yeah, it's like 128 billion, billion, billion gigabytes or something like that. 128 with so many zeros, you don't need to count them. (laughs) With current technology, it would require so many hard drives that just powering them would boil all the water in all the oceans on the planet. (laughs) Forget the hard drives, actually. Just to actually flip all the bits in a maximally sized ZFS pool from zero to one, even assuming utterly perfect energy efficiency, I'm not sure if it would be enough to boil all the oceans, but it would absolutely be enough to have like major planetary level catastrophe impact. <laughs> so the the important takeaway there is just that there effectively is no limitation until we have become an interstellar <laughs> Uh, society with with technology to match, we will not be able to actually build a pool too big for ZFS to handle. Just wait, in another 20 years, that's going to seem like the FAT32 limit does now. It will not, because we're talking about actual (laughs) physics, and physics doesn't change that frequently, Joe. Yeah, I think in particular in this case, it's, it's more atoms than there are even. So even if we actually were storing them in DNA or something, I think it's still more bytes than than we could have. So there are less bad RAID Z calculators, but none of them can be as exact as the method we described where you actually have ZFS do the work for you. Partly because ZFS changes over time. ZFS used to reserve one thirty-second of the size of your pool for the slop so that you wouldn't completely fill the pool. There'd be enough room for ZFS to do its copy on write for you to delete the file that was making your pool completely full. But as we started having pools that were a petabyte in size, it didn't make sense to have 
one thirty second of that reserved. And so the reserve has a, a lower cap now. So depending on the version of ZFS, how much usable space you would get out of that pool would actually differ. And this is the problem with any online calculator is it's never going to be as accurate as testing the version of ZFS you plan to use. And even the number ZFS gives you is actually a worst case scenario. By the time you have compression and uh, RAID Z padding and maybe a larger record size than the default, you can usually fit more data than it says when you first create the pool. But you will always be able to fit at least as much as it says. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to leno.com slash 25A, create a free account, and you get $100 in credit and support the show. That's leno.com slash 25A. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. And do send in your questions. And as I always say, the shorter the better. Joe writes... I have an ancient laptop that was repurposed as a server with new hard drives and cron-based backup jobs. Ubuntu Server 18.04 with ext4 file system. Recently, it threw some file system issues. Occasionally, it seemed to stall out, and on reboot, it drops to BusyBox and init RAMFS, requiring FSCK assistance. This has worked to fix it, but it still feels sluggish when doing just simple things like navigating to the Nextcloud browser page and even entering commands via SSH. HTOP shows CPU and RAM usage at a fraction, but if I take out the boot drive and check it with GNOME Disks or FSCK, the file system says it's fine. I did see some errors about the superblock, but again it seems to be overcome after FSCK. My question is whether this is a corrupt file system that needs a reinstall, the drive is dying, or perhaps memory is causing corruption. I know I probably should just switch to ZFS and not have these problems anymore, but that would likely require some new hardware as well as a reinstall, and I just want to know if you think the hardware is even worth saving. Just wondering your thoughts on where to start. My first thought is it's probably the hard drive, and just buy an SSD, they're cheap now, and replace just that, and you likely can even just DD the old disk to the new disk and see if all your problems go away. The other one I would say is you could use IOSTAT in addition to HTOP to see what's happening on the drive, so if you do iostat-x-d1, and specifically looking at the latency, how long it's taking for each command that you're sending to the hard drive to complete, and if that time is more than 20 milliseconds usually on average, that means the disk is having some kind of problem, and that would suggest replacing the disk. But if you're getting errors about the superblock and so on, it might be the file system that's corrupt. And if this laptop is old enough to have DDR2, then... If it's anything more than just a home lab kind of tinkering, 
machine, if this is actually production, even just on a home level. It's a repurposed laptop. Hopefully this isn't production for anything. But most likely you can get a lot more life out of this hardware by just replacing the disk with an SSD. Being the age of that laptop, I'm sure the disk isn't that big. And an SSD of the same size or slightly bigger or whatever would replace it easily. And the prices of SSD are kind of at a record low at the moment. So swap that hard drive for an SSD. You already talked about taking it out and checking it on a different machine with GNOME disk. If you can just DD to image it, you can possibly do all of this without having to reinstall. Yeah, given this is a laptop, the only thing I'll add is uh, it's a safe thing to go ahead and buy the solid state drive. Because if that turns out not to be sufficient to fix the problem, you can still use it with the replacement hardware that then you need to get for the failing laptop. Especially since if you buy a recycled laptop, it might not come with a hard drive. Yeah, and a SATA SSD, you're always going to find some use for. Yes. The drive is extra likely to be an issue in a laptop. Because if you're talking about a rust drive in a laptop, that is a match made in hell. Conventional hard drives do not like being moved or shaken around or like set down on hard surfaces so you get a nice little solid thump to wiggle the heads. You can very quickly cause problems that way. They also don't really like thermal expansion and contraction. If you tend to like leave your laptop in the trunk of your car overnight and it gets down to 20 degrees Fahrenheit outside and then you bring it into a nice toasty 73 Fahrenheit office, they don't like that. Yeah, the, the flying height of the head is like five microns or something. It's it's many times smaller than the thickness of a hair. So you can imagine any subtle change there, and you're just asking for trouble. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com is the email address to send in your questions or your feedback. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Rissington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.